up, gang? Thanks for listening to the Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson. My guest today is an associate professor of international relations at Victoria University of Wellington. You might have heard of the school. He's written about everything from strategic rivalries to Indian foreign policy to world historical systems of order and international relations. And he's got a, a brilliant new journal article in Global Studies Quarterly called Decentering Hegemony and Open Orders, open in quotes, 15th Century Malacca in a World of Orders. Coming at you all the way from uh, the office next door to mine, my guest is the one and only Manjit Pardesi. Welcome to the show, brother. Thank you, Van, and thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So we're here today because of your article, Decentering Hegemony and Open Orders. I loved everything about this piece. It's a fantastic representation, I think, of what non-Western historical international relations can like can be. Even though it's very historical, it speaks to policy concerns in the present moment. And I wanna I wanna get to that some at the end or whatever, but there's a lot to discuss here first to set that up. Um, there was a lot in here that I didn't know and that I, I imagine a lot of listeners wouldn't know either. So just to kind of frame things out, can you describe the like the world of the 15th century maritime Asia and specifically this city state called Malacca? Like what geographic space are we talking about? What were the political units, all of that? Sure. Uh, in terms of scene setting, the first thing uh, I want to say is, you know, in the contemporary world, when we talk about Southeast Asia, there's a tendency to club Southeast Asia together with Northeast Asia and talk about East Asia. And I guess what I was trying to do at a much larger level uh, in this paper is basically question whether this contemporary region can be transposed back into time to understand how Southeast Asia of that period might have interacted with the Chinese empire. Yeah. And I found that it's deeply problematic uh, and that it cannot be done. Uh, so if you're looking at the world from Southeast Asia, it's a maritime world. Uh, and there are two axes, so to speak. There's the China Seas axes, you know, the South and the North, uh, the South and the East China Seas on the one hand, and on the other hand, the Indian Ocean. And we cannot impose these contemporary strategic area divides that we have created in, in our mental maps of the regions of the world. So in that sense, I kind of wanted to open up uh, and uh, talk about a particular polity, uh, Malacca, uh, in the Strait of Malacca and what today is Malaysia, uh, and a city-state or a port polity, and see how that particular polity navigated its uh, very complex world. So to give you a, um, an idea of the complexity and the kind of political units of this world, so on the one hand, uh, we, of course, have Malacca. And just to give you a little bit of a background, Malacca was founded, and you know, there's a debate uh, on, on these dates, obviously, uh, uh, as it tends to be uh, in historical works. Uh, Malacca was founded by a Hindu Malay prince, a runaway prince from what today is Palembang. Uh, and his descendants uh, adopted Islam, and it became the preeminent Islamic port polity of the Malay-Indonesian world, in fact, for the next 500 years as a model polity, although the polity itself only survived in, its, in that particular form for approximately one century or so. So uh, already we have two layers of complexity, and a, a, a Hindu prince whose descendants you know, are, are Muslim, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, 
Um, this Malacca polity is in a rivalry with two other local polities in Southeast Asia. Uh, the state of Ayutthaya in what today is Thailand, this polity is trying to control the Strait of Malacca from the north. And Majapahit to the south in what today is Indonesia, and this polity is trying to control the Strait of Malacca from the south. And it, in, in fact, it was Majapahit's attack on Palembang that led the prince of Palembang to run away to Malacca in the first place. So th this is a highly networked and deeply connected world, yeah. a, a maritime world. Now, Ayutthaya was a Buddhist polity with links to Sri Lanka, so a very different socio-political order uh, from Malacca, for example. Uh, and Malacca, uh, um, its other rival, Majapahit, uh, in, uh, in Indonesia, that was the last of the great, what some scholars call, Indianized polities of Southeast uh, Asia. Uh, and it survived for another century or so after this period. So already we have Malacca, which is a Muslim polity, Ayutthaya, which is a Buddhist polity with some Hindu influences, but also deeply influenced at one level by Angkor and Sri Lanka. And then we have Majapahit with Indic connections. But then if you go to the east, uh, we have Dairith, uh, and Dairith is a Sinic polity. Uh, so this is a very complex world with multiple socio-political orders. And this entire world uh, is linked on the one hand to the Indian Ocean, uh, India and the Middle East and the Persian Gulf and East Africa, and on the other hand to the uh, South and the East China Seas. So my entire point was to look at this world because in the pre-European world, and you know, uh, uh, you, you spoke uh, in, in the introduction, you mentioned a little bit about non-Western IR. Uh, in this pre European period, because I'm specifically looking at the century before the Portuguese entered the Indian Ocean, mm -hmm. the I wanted to convey was that this was an integrated maritime world stretching all the way from the Persian Gulf uh, on the one hand and East Africa into the China Seas. So to artificially say East Asia of the contemporary world is the unit that we will look at in 15th century is erroneous. It's the point I was trying to get at in a very long-winded fashion. <laughs> As academics are wont to do. But the, that's the, that was what was so remarkable. Like, this is historically accurate, right? It's empirically grounded, but you're radically reframing, like you said, the mental map that we have of, of East Asia to the point where it's like East Asia is not really a relevant descriptor if you go back far enough in time, which just gives us space to imagine ways of being and ways of configuring order that are like very outside of the sort of, you know, great power competition, like the tropes that we use so heavily now. Absolutely. Um, if I can add to that, um, actually, even when seen from China, so, you know, obviously in this paper, I'm looking at the world primarily from Malacca's point of view. Uh, this is the Ming Dynasty era in China. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's the early Ming period in China. But even if you look at the early Ming period, we cannot speak of East Asia you know, in and of itself, because we have to understand that the early Ming came to power after throwing out, literally throwing out uh, the pre-Ming Mongol rulers of China outside of China proper. Mm -hmm. The early Ming were in a deep contest on a pan-Eurasian scale to tell the to tell the rest of Eurasia that it was the early Ming who were the legitimate rulers of China, and not the Mongol Yuan who they, whom they had thrown out. Uh, and they were in touch with uh, obviously uh, the polities in the steppe uh, where the Mongols went to. Uh, 
but also with the Timurids, the Muslim world to their uh, uh, west, and so on. So this was a highly interconnected uh, world. So these boundaries, I, I, I guess the point I'm trying to make is how we divide up you know, a given system or a world into regions actually deeply influences the analysis that comes out of the geopolitical configuration we see in that part of the world. Dude, that's so smart. Yes. You, so you're, you're, getting, you're hinting at it here, but like you justified looking at the Malacca system in the 15th century by contrasting it with the dominant accounts of this era, basically, by like David Kong, who's a friend, John Fairbanks, who's like Uber China, minister, mentor of China watching, uh, and a few others. They describe it as like Sinocentric. Uh, what, what, is that, what is that conventional account? Yes. So the conventional account is, in my mind, problematic. Uh, but the conventional account is, uh, and since you mentioned Fairbank, I should add that in the very first or second page of his book, uh, you know, from the 1960s, where he introduced uh, 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 this whole tributary framework, uh, which we use uh, in, in, in many parts of the discipline, in the first or the second page, he pretty much says that this region called East Asia was geographically separate from other parts of Asia. So he's already analytically, so my point being that he's already analytically drawing a boundary yeah. and saying that this East Asia is different and we will study this Asia, this East Asia differently. Whereas what I'm saying is that it's, it's not the analyst who should divide the world. It is historical processes that should tell us if there are connections or if there aren't any connections before making those kinds of uh, divisions. Now, the other point I wish to make is uh, John, uh, uh, in, in Fairbank's work, uh, in fact, he very specifically says that East Asia is a cultural area. Uh, and it's a cultural area uh, where, um, you know, what we think of as Sinic civilization actually held sway in terms of its political ideas, in terms of its texts, in terms of its script, in terms of its philosophies, uh, and so on. Mm -hmm. But if that's the definition of East Asia, it is actually limited to what we think of as China proper today, what we think of as Korea, what we think of as Japan, uh, uh, Ryukyu, Okinawa, and Northern Vietnam. And I'm being very specific because Vietnam is at the interface of East Asia and Southeast Asia. So, uh, but that's the cultural area. The question is, is this a geopolitical area also or not? When seen from the Sinic, uh, center, uh, because China is supposed to have uh, established a tributary system and other polities in this system are believed to have known their place, and that's what maintained order uh, in this uh, uh, in this system. In a cultural sense, this world is limited only to these polities. So the rest of Southeast Asia is not a part of this cultural world. So even if Fairbank's model is true, it's probably true only for that part of the Northeast world. Northeast Asia, yeah. <laughs> We, we cannot extend that argument to all of uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, and, and even uh, Vietnam, you know, I, I said specifically Northern Vietnam, and I, and I mentioned in my uh, prior remarks that Northern Vietnam, Dai Viet, was a Sinic uh, style polity. But what was then Southern Vietnam was Champa. Now, Champa was a network of uh, uh, city states. Uh, there's some debate as to how to define it. But Champa was a heavily Hinduized polity uh, and in deep connection with Majapahit uh, that I mentioned a while ago, that was one of uh, Malacca's rivals. 
So it's a, it's a very complex system. Uh, if we have Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist polities, which are very distinct from Sinic polities, why should they know their place in a cultural sense that the Sinic center demands? Mm -hmm. Because they are not a part of that cultural world. So more recently, uh, uh, Jim Milward has actually argued, and in my opinion, very correctly, that this hierarchic way, this tributary system was the ideal world view when seen from the Chinese center, mm -hmm. which is very different from world order, yeah. which is, you know, how social and political relations are actually patterned. And I guess I kind of wanted to bring out that distinction. That's helpful. Yeah, a few years ago, I had this review essay on East Asian security. And in it, I was arguing for a historical institutionalist sensibility. We don't need to get into that. Um, but in making the argument, I was, I was critical at the time of the quote unquote Eastern turn in international relations, where we were not, we were choosing fewer European cases and choosing more Asian cases. And that practice of looking East or whatever, that makes plenty of sense, right? Like IR is Eurocentric, it is US centric. But my concern at the time was that a lot of the research that was making IR more Asian, quote unquote, was really constructing narratives that naturalized Chinese hierarchy, like Sinocentrism. And like, that seemed unproductive to me because you're just swapping one centrism for another centrism or something. And the historical interpretations, I didn't have the chops to, to like adjudicate that. It's not my area, but like, it seemed questionable. And that was one of the great things here because like, your essay here, you're taking seriously the Asian case histories, but you're doing it without the sort of, it's not bad faith, but like the romanticism that gets deployed to justify hierarchies, basically. And you're using it, you're like staying faithful to his, his, history itself to like make that case. Can you compare what it means or what it looks like, I guess, to have a centered versus decentered international order? Sure. Uh, sure. Uh, but, but before that, I actually uh, uh, also wanted to say that I completely agree with you. The whole point of doing, and I don't like this term too much, but I'm using it in a heuristic sense, non-Western IR, yeah, uh, yeah. Is, uh, is, is, is to challenge Eurocentrism. But of course, like you said, the point is not to replace it with Sinocentrism. Otherwise, what's the purpose? Like, yeah. What have we achieved? Um, yeah. So everything comes from Europe? No, everything doesn't come from Europe. Everything comes from China. And, uh, <laughs> That's a trap. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and I guess what I was trying to say is that there are other ways uh, of uh, looking at uh, things. And some of the fundamental things that we do in our analyses in terms of how do we define a system mm -hmm. or a region actually fundamentally alters what we see. So when we think of any Eastern world order, we don't necessarily have to look at that from the point of view of the great father of that part of the world. Uh, so the little guys might have some very interesting uh, things to show us, mm -hmm. uh, is, is what I was trying to say. Uh, your other question is a, a, a very uh, difficult one to answer in some ways, and I struggled with it a lot, you know, while working on this paper. Centered uh, versus decentered order. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and, and, and I guess to put it very simply, uh, in the paper, uh, I make uh, three points. I say in a centered system, uh, there are three things. In a centered system, all social political uh, relations are oriented towards one center mm -hmm. uh, by definition, point one. 
point two, the center actually lays down the law. Uh, in the sense, the center actually establishes the practices governing these social, political, economic, uh, and so on, different types of relationships. And the third point is that the center does not recognize any peers, uh, any equals, so to speak. Mm -hmm. so, so, uh, so that, to me, is a centered system. And if these three points do not hold, I argue that the system is then, by definition, decentered. Uh, in a, in a decentered system, I'm not saying that there are no power hierarchies. What I am saying is that the orientation of these hierarchical axes do not point towards one center. Mm -hmm. These hierarchies are shifting, fluid, uh, and multiple. Uh, uh, and in a decentered world, there are lower and higher centers. There's no it center. Uh, so what I was trying to say is, um, uh, in Malacca's world, at least, when seen from Malacca's point of view, the Ming might have been one center, but um, there was another center uh, which affected how Malacca saw the world, and that was the realm of, um, de depending on how you define it, Islamicate Asia mattered uh, in Malacca's worldview. Some call it the Persian cosmopolis. I use the two interchangeably uh, mm -hmm. in the paper. But also, it is interesting to note that it's not like the Islamic Asian, Islamicate Asian world was one polity. Or, there, or if there was a central polity, at least in the Islamic and Asian world at this point in time, this was also a world of multiple polities. So, uh, and in fact, this was an ideational world to some degree as well. Um, so it's very difficult to pinpoint a center of Islamic Asia at this point in time. So it was more of an idea uh, uh, in the 15th century world than an actual center from which rules and practices of that system actually emanated. And so already there, there's a layer of complexity. And the, uh, another point I made was that actually Malacca itself, uh, by combining all of these practices that were surrounding it in, in the Sinaic and Islamicate worlds, actually emerged as a mini center in its own right in the Malay, Indonesian, um, maritime Southeast Asian world. And in fact, the city-states, the port polities that emerged in the 15th century uh, in maritime Southeast Asia actually emulated Malacca. They did not emulate Ming China, uh, mm. you know, the hegemon, if you like, of the system. And they did not emulate far-off Islamicate polities, whoever they might be, whether in Iran or India or elsewhere. That's fascinating. I'm, I'm wary of this getting like too wonky and too theoretical, but I wonder if you can talk briefly about how you draw on global historical sociology as method, right? Like big picture, what does it mean for actors in international relations to be relationally constituted? Remember, like, and as non-wonky as possible. <laughs> All right, I'll do my best. I'll try to do my best. Uh, so I'm going to use, I guess, um, uh, okay, I'm, I'm going to make two points. Global historical sociology, at, uh, on the one at, at one level, argues that when we think of social units, we need to think of social units only in relationship to others. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, because it is these relationships that create the the networks, the patterns of uh, uh, you know linkages that are of interest to the social scientist. Uh, so, in, what this means is that quote unquote change when it happens in the system does not emerge endogenously from within the unit, and it does not emerge completely exogenously from without the unit. It is the interaction of the inside and the outside that produce change. At, at one level, it says that. 
But at the other level, it also says that we need to take a macro. This relationship between two units is actually embedded in a much wider system. So we have to look at this much wider system as well. So we have to look at things globally. So, so, you, uh, so you look at things globally and you, think, you look at things uh, relationally. And what really emerges from these two ways of looking at things is that you know, things are not static and they change over time. So you also have to understand how these processes, these patterns of linkages evolve mm -hmm. historically. So, um, so in, 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 in that sense, the kind of uh, approach that we need to take to social units is that social units are entities in motion. Mm -hmm. They are not fixed things. So they, they change over the course of time. So, uh, so to, to make it non-wonky and to you know, say something concrete in that sense, what it really means is that global order is actually a dynamic process. Order is not a static thing uh, because if everything is an entity in motion, even order is dynamic. So, and political units themselves change uh, over the course of time. That's helpful. So for you, taking a relational approach is, it's more than just an ontological assumption because you're actually showing evidence of how Malacca's relations kind of reconstituted, remade what Malacca even was. Absolutely, absolutely. Because, um, you know, to put it very crudely, it was founded by a, a Hindu prince who immediately uh, adopted Islam or his descendant immediately adopted uh, Islam uh, uh, in, a, in, a, in a matter of years. And then they, con uh, they continued down the Islamic path. They created a whole new Malayo-Islamic uh, uh, identity uh, and so on, but nevertheless, they continued, um, uh, uh, you know, their social economic uh, relationships uh, uh, with the Ming Empire, for example. Uh, so just because they turned towards the Indian Ocean does not mean that it came at the expense of, uh, 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 you know, the Sinic world. Yeah. Uh, and, and we need to think, uh, uh, look at things globally. And the globe for Malacca stretched, like I said, from the Persian Gulf to the China Seas. Yeah, I mean, you're describing a very complex setting just right off the bat, but like as an empirical question, like why did Malacca not simply go all in and just do block politics? Because you have multiple blocks, right? Yeah. More than two even. Um, yeah. But especially, I mean, I guess the, the pointy question is like, why would Malacca or why did Malacca avoid kind of the Sinocentrism of Northeast Asia? Um, but just in general, why not just fold yourself into a block? In fact, I would answer that. This is a very difficult question to answer, to be honest. Yeah, uh, maybe uh, it's not even fair. I don't know. You know, but that's okay. I, I love such questions because they allow you to think. Uh, yeah. I would actually say, I, I would actually answer it uh, uh, by giving you some examples because I think it will um, mm -hmm. um, you know, help me clarify some matters. I actually don't think... Uh, cultures, I, I, I guess the other thing that global historical sociology tries to do is uh, we, we militate against uh, these blocks, this block thinking mm -hmm. of cultures slash civilizations uh, and, and so on. So let me give you the example of China itself. Uh, so it is assumed that the tributary system is all that China had. That is just not true. The tributary system was just one part of how the Chinese empire worked. Mm -hmm. uh, so, to, so talking about the 15th century, so, uh, you know, Chang He sent these voyages, uh, uh, the Ming sent these voyages uh, led by Chang He into the uh, Indian Ocean, uh, right? Um, now, uh, the, 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 the interesting thing is, 
when the Chankha voyages, when they reached uh, Sri Lanka, among other things, they were also interested in Buddhist diplomacy because they wanted to uh, collect Buddhist artifacts because that would have made the main, the rulers of Tibet as well, or at least try to claim some sort of ownership over Tibet. So in other words, now the Ming themselves are operating outside the Sinic framework. They are operating in the Buddhist uh, framework. Mm -hmm. To give you another example, uh, one of the uh, people who accompanied Chang He was uh, a Muslim Chinese uh, a chronicler called Ma Huan. And in one of the Chang He voyages, he actually went uh, to Mecca uh, mm. because he was Muslim. Yeah. So he knew of another quote-unquote center of some sort of cultural civilization power, and this did not contradict with who he was as, a, as an envoy of the Chinese emperor. Hmm. So I, I guess what I'm trying to say in a very elliptical fashion is that uh, even China did not make these choices. You know, it's, it's the analysts who have boxed China in a corner and said the tributary system is all that you had. Your emperor was only the son of heaven. This is the only way you reached out to the rest of the world. Yeah. And I'm saying none of that is true. And, actually, and, and I guess what I'm saying is that actually the maritime space makes us see this most clearly. Uh, but that could be my bias. And I'm guessing you know, scholars who study China and inner Asia might have other views. And actually, I should be fair to them because I've learned a lot from their work. In, I, so I actually want to mention uh, this fantastic book uh, by uh, Tim. It's, it's actually a, a multi-authored book. Uh, 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 and the lead editors slash authors are uh, Timothy Brook. Uh, Michael Van Wald, Van Prague, and uh, Mieke Gaultiers. It's called Sacred Mandates. Uh, and hmm. it is a fantastic book. It looks at what they call uh, Inner and East Asia over several centuries, the Yuan, uh, the Ming, and the Qing. And they argue that over these 700 odd years or so, there were three international legal orders uh, in quote-unquote, their Asia, which is Inner Asia and East Asia. And these were the Sinic order, uh, but the, uh, the, the Mongol world order and the Tibetan Buddhist world order. In other words, the Chinese also in Inner Asia learned to navigate multiple orders. And what I'm saying is that in the maritime realm, they were also navigating multiple orders at the same time. So these, nobody had, so even the Chinese didn't make these choices. So why should, uh, and if they are the largest power of the system in, in this world at this point in time, why should any of the other ones, uh, uh, you know, uh, have to make uh, those choices? Yeah, it's often the case that block politics is not a historical fact. It's one very simplified way of making sense of a situation and how, how faithful that is to reality is like, your mileage may vary. But in this case, that isn't what was going on. Um, you actually say in the piece, you have this quote, you say, Malacca could succeed only if it attracted traders from uh, Ming China, Java, Siam, uh, and Northern Sumatra to its port without being swallowed by one of these established powers. And that, that brings us to like, what's maybe this crucial strategy insight here. So like the openness of maritime Asia it did not owe to any single great empire. Um, it owed to smaller polities like Malacca, accumulating patterns of relations that diluted the importance of any one actor, basically, in the system. To do that, 
it adopted a strategy that you call attraction. What 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 is that? What does that look like? This is this is sweet. Uh, so um, so attraction. I approach attraction uh, in a in a relational sense because global historical sociology. That's my uh, you know meta framework. Uh, but before I, t- I talk about that, I also want to say that actually even Waltz uh, spoke about attraction, and I have a, uh, a, 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 and I have a quote by Walt uh, in the uh, uh, Walter uh, Waltz. Uh, Kenneth Wal- Kenneth uh, Waltz. Waltz. Yes, uh, and, and 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 I have a question, uh, a quote where he actually said that you know people who are being courted. Actually, have to make themselves attracted to the ones who uh, who are uh, quoting them. But so for me, this is a very structural definition of attraction. What I wanted to say was actually attraction is a is a social relationship. So it's, a, it's always a two-way relationship. So A may be attracted to B, but B may also be attracted to A. Mm-hmm. And the reasons why they may be attracted to each other might be completely different. So uh, so. So, so since I look at attraction as a relationship and since I look at it as a process, I look at three things. So for, I, I say first attraction is a learning process. There's a bit of trial and error because if you try to change yourself or change others, it may not pan out. Yeah. So uh, it, it, it involves learning uh, as a step. The second step is uh, that once you start interacting and attracting others, it should create you know, pleasantness on both sides. Uh, and, 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 and if it doesn't, uh, then the relationship may not last. And so that goes back to the first point about trial and learning. Uh, but if it succeeds, then the initial reasons why the two were attracted to each other no longer matter. Then it develops a life uh, of uh, its own because things are dynamic and they change over the course of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the third point is that actually uh, A and B can be completely dissimilar. You do, you're not necessarily always attracted to similar kinds of qualities only. So uh, Malacca could be a person uh, Islamic polity, like I say, and China could be Sinic, and they could both be attracted to each other for entirely different reasons. So uh, among, among the points I make is uh, Malacca was attracted to China because, among other things, China was the preeminent economic power of its time, and Malacca was a trade-based polity. So obviously, Malacca got genuine commercial benefits Money. from interacting with China. Yeah. But interestingly, China also got something from Malacca because the Chinese ideology or the Sinic ideology, I should say, was the Chinese emperor is the son of heaven and others actually recognize him as such. So Malacca's paying tribute was not about, not as much about uh, the legitimacy of the Malaccan ruler in Malacca for ideological reasons. It was actually ideological legitimation for the Chinese ruler for ruling China itself. Malacca no, nowhere justifies its uh, or the rulers of Malacca no, nowhere justify their rulership based on Chinese investiture, which is what states in the Sinic realm do. Mm-hmm. Uh, Malacca has a way of legitimizing which is rooted in the Perso Islamicate uh, uh, way of looking at things, not in the Sinic way of looking at things. So the point being that Malacca and China were attracted to each other for different reasons. They were, they were dissimilar they were still attracted to each other because they perform different social functions for each other. So common interests does not, should not be conflated with common motives. And in this yes. case, there were different motives. Yes. That's smart. Um, you mentioned how Persian culture loomed much larger in Malacca's imaginary than, than Chinese culture. Can you uh, unpack that a bit or you know, point to some kind of example? 
Sure, uh, so I'll give you a couple of examples. For one thing, China, guess which language Malacca and China communicated in? Not Chinese. It was Persian. Yeah. <laughs> so, 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 so uh, and, and what I do say uh, in, the, uh, in, in, in the paper is that Persian language, at least in this period of time, in this part of the world, was the carrier of another world order, the personal Islamicate uh, mm -hmm. world order. Uh, so in, in, in other words, the Chinese also knew that Persian was a carrier of a universalism of a different sort. So the Chinese were propagating, you know, their um, hierarchy in a, in a language that was the carrier of a different world order altogether. So this is a very complex uh, 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 picture. So, you know, some scholars have uh, called the whole tributary system actually a bit of fiction, organized hypocrisy. Uh, so there's a little bit of that. So, so, so one example is um, that the, the means of communication between Malacca and China were uh, in the Persian language. The other is uh, in the Sinic realm, in the tributary system, uh, we are told that the, uh, uh, in, you know, the Chinese emperor confirms uh, through the institution of investiture the ruler of the subordinate state. Now, this is not how Malaccan uh, historical sources, the, the Malay annals, uh, uh, you know, talk about how um, um, the ruler of Malacca uh, actually justified uh, his uh, rulership, his kingship. Mm -hmm. If the Chinese emperor is the son of heaven, the Malaccan ruler called himself the shadow of God on earth, which is a very perso Islamic idea. Mm -hmm. So he was not ruling because he had been given uh, uh, investiture by, he had received the investiture of uh, the Chinese son of heaven. So, so in that sense, he was attracted to a different set of ideas uh, 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 altogether. Um, yeah, so I think these are two main, uh, uh, you know, points. Uh, there's a third one, actually. Chang He, when he sailed into Southeast Asia, he actually carried a bunch of Chinese texts with him to distribute to the entire maritime world to spread Chinese culture. Outside of the Sinic realm that we discussed at the beginning of the talk, there were no takers. The rest of the world did not become... Sinicized. And, and even though there was no Mus there was no uh, uh, Changhe equivalent in Islamicate Asia spreading Islamicate texts, mm -hmm. these texts did spread through traders. We can't name through whom uh, because they were so pervasive and polities transformed. <laughs> uh, so, that was organic, yeah, as far as organic. we know. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The <laughs> even though I should say Changhe himself was Muslim, by the way. Uh, but uh, Oh, I didn't I know that. Yeah. In fact, it was of Central Asian Muslim origin. Uh, had huh. been in China for the family had been in China for a couple of generations. But uh... hmm. yeah, that reminds me of like the Xi Jinping thought books that get, end up at airports and nobody fucking wants them because like why? <laughs> why would you? Yeah. Um, I want to I want to talk about decentering versus hedging. So, some of the stuff I wrote in the past, like people associate me with the hedging literature, but. Hedging is like, it means so many things. I, I find it to be just unsatisfying a lot of times. Um, like it kind of flattens things or like it implies that you're in some like interim between band bandwagoning and balancing or something. Could you take a crack at distinguishing how you think about decentering and attraction as a strategy compared to like what people might call hedging? Uh, before that, I actually want to make a point, a slightly different but related point. Um, so, uh, I use, D because I'm, I'm relational, for me, um, 
Decentering is both an attribute or a structural attribute as well as an agential strategy. So it, it emerges from both of these factors. So you can describe together. it both so, ways. Yes. Uh, whereas my understanding of hedging is that hedging is mostly an agential strategy. Yeah. Uh, so, 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 so that's one big difference already between hmm. uh, 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 decentering and, uh, uh, and, 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 and hedging because uh, it's also a structural attribute of a system. Uh, and, and, and like so you can say a system is decentered, or you could say this actor is doing decentering. Whereas with yes. hedging, it's not like the structure is, you know, that's not, yes. yeah, that makes sense. Yes. Uh, I, I, and I guess the other big difference is uh, that hedging, like you mentioned, is a strategy of it's hesitation. Uh, you mm. know, uh, you, you don't really want to choose sides. Whereas in decentering, you choose all sides. Uh, without giving any of them the power to control you. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, I mean, of course, uh, your uh, power imbalances and cultural asymmetries matter so that they influence how much agency you do have. Yeah. But this does not mean that you there's, there's nothing. So it's a dynamic process, and that's why my emphasis on dynamism uh, earlier. So to give you one example, uh, so like I say in the paper, Malacca was able to... To, to pursue this strategy of decentering, mm -hmm. uh, uh, but that doesn't mean other polities in uh, uh, that all other polities in Southeast Asia were also able to pursue a strategy of decentering. So, for example, we know that the Ming attacked Palembang and installed a puppet ruler there, uh, uh, and we also know that the Ming attacked Vietnam and occupied Dai Viet, northern Vietnam, and occupied it for twenty years uh, around this time, and so on. So, for these guys. Decentering as a strategy did not work, but the other fact remains that the world that they were living in, in a, in a structural sense, was de still decentered in the sense that there were multiple socio-political centers, you know, hmm. Sinai, Islamic aid, and so on that I already mentioned. Uh, and at the same time, uh, and while China was certainly the largest single uh, economy in the uh, single largest economy in the world, it was not the economic center of the world in the sense um, as maritime economic historians have written both west asia uh, and south asia were other economic centers and collectively they were big enough that it was not a lopsided sinocentric world even in an economic sense even though china was a unified polity under the main okay um, so it was both economically and socio-politically in a structural sense a decentered world so you can have so you can have smaller actors in a decentered world pursuing a decentering strategy but failing like the wager yes. could could not work out depending on other factors yes which absolutely. is yeah so there is a risk i mean nothing's risk-free i suppose but yes yeah okay you mentioned two things that stand out to me as important um for like kind of separating necessary and sufficient conditions one is how malacca's economy was totally dependent on trade and the ming dynasty in china was was not taxing trade they they were taxing land um and so it was to malacca's advantage to cultivate trade relations with china in a way um the other thing was like malacca invested heavily in building um port infrastructure to facilitate its role as a trading hub do you think either of those two things were conditions of possibility to pursue a decentered order or put differently if ming china taxes trade does Malacca still pursue a decentered order with the Ming, like doing the tributary state thing? And then if Malacca doesn't invest in port infrastructure, 
is it even able to pursue a decentered strategy? Yeah, no, great question. So I, I kind of want to clarify, um, the Ming got most of its revenue from agriculture and land taxes within China. Uh, so they did engage in trade, but the trade that they engaged in was, you know, state controlled trade, essentially, at least in the period I'm looking at the early Ming uh, period. So, so all, yeah, all state companies, yeah. yeah. Okay. So all, all trade was tributary trade. So the revenue that the Ming made from this uh, tributary trade was minuscule compared to what the Ming got from agriculture. So in that sense, it was minuscule uh, for the Ming. But for Malacca and other maritime and several other maritime polities, trade was what made their polities tick. Trade, state making was all about commercial enterprise mm -hmm. uh, and legitimizing the wealth generated through this commercial enterprise through certain socio-political processes. There could be Islamicate, Buddhist, Hindu, and so on. Uh, so, so that so that was the the theory of state making, if you like. Mm -hmm. Now. Um, uh, so so I, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that the Ming were taxing trade. It was just not important enough for them to conquer other lands for purposes of trade. Was it there? Okay. Of that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, so, so that's one. But I guess what I mean by decentering uh, in, uh, in this context is that the practices, the social practices governing trade did not emanate from China, is what I was trying to say. So, so for example, ah, like in, okay. so, so in China, you have to pay tribute to the Chinese emperor, whatever those social practices of the tributary system were, you had to adhere to those practices to engage in trade with China. Whereas Malacca said, you can be Muslim, you can be non-Muslim, you can come to our polity and we will tax you more or less evenly. Uh, uh, we won't discriminate between Muslims and non-Muslims, between the Indian Ocean traders and between the China Seas uh, traders and so on. There were some differences, of course, on uh, how they governed them, but no one was discriminated against uh, in the way the Chinese might have simply said, if you're not paying tribute, you can't trade with us. Mm -hmm. uh, so Malacca could care less about that. So my, my point was that Malacca established its own practices of trading uh, that did not come from China. Uh, so if, if Malacca had also practiced tributary trade, that which would in turn have meant that only smaller polities, much smaller than Malacca, would pay tribute to Malacca, right? Because mm -hmm. bigger polities would not pay. <laughs> like in, in, and we're getting in the realm of what if now. Yeah, yeah. But but my point was that the practices of trade in maritime Asia did not come from China. There were several practices of maritime trade. At the Chinese end of the system, whatever the practices might have been, they were not systemic practices. And that's why when it comes to trade, the system was decentered. Uh, also, along with the fact that there were other centers, like I said, uh, collectively in South and West Asia, which meant that China was not the be all and end all of commerce. Because the other point I also make is uh, that uh, uh, the, the most widely traded good, uh, uh, like commercial good in the system was cotton cloth from India. Uh, uh, which was carried by Muslim merchants from India, and uh, which was very important for, uh, which was perhaps socially the most important product for Malacca. So even though China trade was important because China was commercially the single largest political entity, the kinship networks were maintained by this social currency distribution of Indian cotton cloth to the Malaccan king's subordinates uh, hmm. in, the, in the royal palace and beyond. So, um, so again, China is not the center of the world uh, in, uh, in, in multiple ways. <laughs>
Yeah. And you're, it's funny, you're describing too, like a historical context where the material or the like vulgar economic is not, it, it cannot be vulgarized as something apart from the social and the cultural, actually, like the value of the economic is sort of interwoven with the. Yes, the because it's linked to state making ultimately. Yeah. So at least for the entire maritime world, the smaller polities, whatever it meant for China. Yeah. Um, for China, it actually meant acknowledgement by the others of China's superior status through the rituals of the tributary system. Uh, and, and many polities were willing to do that. Uh, 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 but I should also add that um, uh, with the exception of small states like uh, Malacca and perhaps Brunei, um, the leaders of the states never went to pay tribute to China. Uh, private traders claimed that they were paying tribute to the Chinese emperor on behalf of their own rulers. Mm. So it was in that sense a bit of a fiction, especially outside the, uh, the Sinic cultural realm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's a good deal if you can fob fob get a get a material bargain in exchange for some gestures or whatever. Uh, um, also, because uh, uh, um, in 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 a, in a in a purely commercial sense, uh, and this is somewhat debatable, so I don't want to emphasize it too much. But at least I want to note it. Uh, at least in certain periods, uh, the tributary system might have been a loss-making enterprise for China in a, from a purely rational economic uh, point I've read of view. that, yeah. Uh, it's especially true for the Song dynasty uh, uh, because uh, the, 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 the principle being that because China is the larger power, if you're paying tribute to China, and tribute does not mean tax in the Chinese context. Paying tribute to China doesn't mean you're paying China tax. You're paying China, you, you are giving China, the ruler of China, a gift. The gift could be of particular commercial value, but because China is the larger player, China will give you a return gift of a much larger value. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, collectively, depending on how much tributary trade China engaged in, so it could become end up being a loss-making enterprise. And some scholars have said that for the song in particular, it was perhaps a loss-making enterprise. But, but yeah. that is uh, not what my paper is about. But I just wanted to point that out. Yeah, no, that's worth noting. Like for the Chinese ruling class at any given time, the tributary system was a kind of psychic wage or that almost like ontological security or something, which is a totally different way of understanding the tributary system. Um, yes. The tributary system was not for China a way of generating economic resources in whichever period we are talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, to the degree that it was linked to trade, it did that, but it did that through trade. It did not do that through the practice of the ruler paying tribute because that tribute simply meant a gift. Yeah. So if you if you engaged in those social practices of kowtowing and giving this gift to the Chinese emperor, then the traders from your polity will be allowed to trade with China. So we need to disaggregate that, those, those two things. Yeah, yeah. Um, the the decentered system of order in this era, it was pluralistic. It was open, and for a while, it it kind of bought equilibrium among very different, uh, you know, great powers, civilizations. I don't know what you would refer to them as, but then the Portuguese happened in fifteen eleven. What? What, how did the, how did that go down? How did everybody react? This is a little bit out of scope because it's like, how did the order end? But that's what I'm curious yeah. about. Uh, actually, I would say, so obviously my paper ends uh, at the end of the century and I 
don't really engage with the Portuguese uh, that much because I kind of want to just emphasize how it worked in the first place and yeah, what yeah. it tells as far out here as opposed to talking about how it ended. But I, I do want to point out a couple of things. First, you know, there's, especially when people talk about the Sinai culture and they say China protected uh, its tributaries. Uh, and, and China, of course, it's easy to issue orders. Uh, and, and, and so, uh, so let me give you a different example just to illustrate the point. So uh, Ayutthaya, which I mentioned at the start of the talk, uh, was um, a rival of uh, Malacca, especially in its early days. Uh, Ayutthaya also paid tribute to China. So Ayutthaya was also a tributary of China. And Malacca was also a tributary of China. Uh, actually, the relations between Ayutthaya and Malacca worsened because they both became tributaries. So China was not, so China, of course, occasionally issued uh, diktats to Ayutthaya to not bully uh, uh, Malacca, but actually in practice, Malacca had to pay tribute to Ayutthaya as well, while it was also a tributary of uh, uh, China. Hmm. In other words, hierarchies have multiple axes. And my point again being that Malacca's world did not revolve around China uh, 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 alone. And secondly, uh, even when the uh, people of Malacca asked China for help, as in military help, it wasn't forthcoming. Uh, so, uh, so when uh, Ayutthaya attacked, China simply admonished Ayutthaya did not do anything. In the late 1400s, uh, 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 so in the late 1400s, by the late 1400s, Vietnam, Dai Viet, Northern Vietnam, attacks and gobbles up most of Champa in what today is Southern Vietnam. Uh, and some of these people flee into other parts of maritime Asia, including to Malacca. Uh, and uh, Vietnam threatens Malacca again, and Malacca um, uh, re reports to Ming China, and China does nothing. And so we have to see it in that context. So next come the Portuguese. Malacca again goes back to China for help. The Chinese do nothing. <laughs> so uh, That's kind uh, of an indicator, right? Like... How Sinocentric is this order, man? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, if you're not willing to do something about it, interesting. Um, but, but, but I do want to make another note um, uh, that the Portuguese entry uh, into the Indian Ocean uh, in, the, in this world, this maritime world that we are looking at, um, uh, the Portuguese were initially thought of as simply violent traders. Um, they, they did not uh, dominate the system. Uh, point one. Point two, that when the Portuguese actually began communicating with uh, the Chinese, guess what language was used? Not Chinese. Persian. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, uh, so this was a thoroughly Persian. Path dependency world. is a bitch, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and this was a world to which the Portuguese adjusted to, uh, as opposed to the world adjusted. Of course, there were some, uh, you know, the, the actual trade patterns changed a little bit, and some cities uh, and some small polities rose and fell. But the larger structure of the system, and including Malacca, mm -hmm. uh, the Malaccan royal family fled, uh, and, and, and so on. Uh, but the larger pattern of this decenteredness did not change with the Portuguese. Uh, that's so, a good thing but to know. Yeah. I'm looking at, but I just wanted to emphasize uh, that point as well. Yeah, I mean the the fortunes of individuals or groups will you know rise and fall when you've got a foreign conquester coming in, but uh, the system 
could still be stable or the order could still be configured in broadly the same way. Yeah. Um, okay. In, in lots of decentered systems have some ability to absorb new actors and make them just a part of the system. Yeah, it's a good the point. It was overwhelmed by European powers much later. Yeah, uh, it's not so rigid. Yeah, yeah. In, in, in fact, I would say, uh, and um, I, I would say it happened only um, after the Industrial Revolution. A, a point that uh, you know, for example, Barry Buzan and George Lawson have made in their global transformation. Durable that diversity. Really, yeah. Yeah, European domination happens only after the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I want to, like, I want to. So this is, of course, beyond my paper, but uh, an issue that I have looked at uh, that even in the maritime Asian realm. Uh, domination. They become actors, you know, uh, the, the, the Dutch eventually get some colonies in maritime Southeast Asia and so on, but they don't dominate the system. Mm -hmm. uh, domination happens much later. Fascinating. The final point of discussion, bringing all of this back to today, you know, I've, I've argued in other venues, um, it seems like if you take a relational view of IR, but also just like, if even just like a narrowly relational view of power, the whole notion of great power rivalry starts to seem suspect. Like it involves a lot of erasure of possibilities. Um, like to see like a great power is to not see how order gets produced from what others do, what smaller states do. And this leads me to like a two part question for you. Like one, do you have reservations about great power rivalry as an ordering construct for Asia? Um, you know, how do you think about order in the 2020s? Big meta question. But two, like, do you see similarities between the Malacca strategy of attraction and the, the decentering that is attempted with like friend to all, enemy to none postures by a lot of smaller Asian and Pacific states today? Yeah, uh, you know, great questions, uh, both the two part question. Um, so, um, so your first question was how do i see um yeah order order in the 2020s like what the the thing is great power rivalry is the name of, that everyone uses yeah. but like so i would say i wouldn't use that as a construct mm -hmm. but i will say that it is one of the constituents of the emerging order and for me, order is a dynamic of what's happening. Yeah. So it's, it's a part of what is happening, but I don't think it's necessarily all consuming uh, uh, in, in, the, in the sense that war does not have the same salience that it did in the pre-modern world that it does uh, uh, today. So let, 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 me, let me explain what I mean. In the in the 19th and 20th centuries, uh, my reading is that uh, war was all-consuming, both for the great powers and both for uh, uh, you know the, the colonized uh, world. In the sense, the colonies disappeared, and the great powers, at least in the 20th century, might have fought, fought total wars. Mm -hmm. uh, but at least since 1945, we know that great power wars have not happened. If one discounts the U.S.-China war in Korea, but then that world was bipolar, yeah. so China was not a great power. By Bas definition. Basically, no great power wars since World War II. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so I don't think um, war war is, of course, dangerous. I don't want to downplay uh, the importance of thinking about war uh, and uh, and and so on. But I think uh, there have been a number of reasons put forward by various scholars that have diminished the salience of warfare. 
uh, in terms of order making. So it, it is a feature, yes, I will obviously not deny that, but it doesn't have to be the all-consuming paradigm of the, the way it was in the previous two uh, uh, centuries, uh, mm. for example. Uh, so yes, I wouldn't put uh, uh, rivalry uh, as the central feature of, uh, of the order. Let's face it, uh, the US and China are still each other's you know, uh, largest trading partners. I think China is still the largest trading partner after uh, Canada and Mexico. Mm-hmm. And for the uh, for China, the U.S. still is the largest uh, trading partner. We're talking about you know hundreds of billions of dollars, and that's not going to go away anytime soon. There are all sorts of other connections. Those other connections can be curbed, but I don't think they can be severed because you know uh, we are told China and the U.S. are economically. Or China is intertwined with the global economy in a way, you know, some previous some of America's previous rivals might not have been. Yeah. So 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 rivalry cannot be an all-consuming uh, uh, dimension of. Uh, uh, order building, uh, even though it remains important. But uh, but I would, uh, coming back to the second point, um, I think uh, smaller states have a lot more agency than they are given uh, credit for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so looking at Southeast Asia, because this paper was about uh, Southeast Asia in particular, uh, you know, I think the Singaporean leaders have made this point a bunch of times. We want to be friends to all and enemies to none, exactly in the way uh, 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 you have put it. But I would say, uh, if you if you look at you know people like um, uh, like Evelyn Goh, uh, 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 you, you know uh, when she talks about omni enmeshment mm-hmm. of the great powers uh, and also uh, how uh, ASEAN to some degree also manages the great powers as opposed to simply being managed by the great powers, uh, um, I, I, I think these features talk to me about you know um, small states being able to connect different great powers and different worlds, uh, if you like. And likewise, Amitabh Acharya's work on how orders are built uh, uh, bottom-up also. They're not just a top-down construct, so mm-hmm. localization and small state agency matters. So I think we are seeing that uh, uh, today as well uh, uh, in, uh, in, in, in Southeast Asia uh, in, uh, in, in particular. And, and coming back to how all of this is not always or necessarily linked to war, we know that uh, China's primary way of "quote unquote" making order in Southeast Asia is through the commercial route, through uh, through initially through trade networks, uh, but now through connectivity, BRI, uh, and, and, and other forms partnerships, of yeah. relationships. So yes, uh, rivalry will remain a feature of global politics, uh, but it's not the you know. The, uh, the determining uh, uh, factor, uh, if you you like, yeah. Yeah, there's something more than just rhetoric going on when you hear the smaller powers talking about what what some variation of like love all, serve all, or inclusive, inclusivity. That was the Hard Rock Cafe motto, actually, but (laughs) friend all, enemy to none. Well, dude, this was, any any, uh, unspent rounds? Anything, any missed thing that we missed, maybe? Um... No, I don't think so. I really had, this was fun. Yeah. Yeah, it really was. This is, this is great research. I don't know how long it took you to come up with this, but it was worth it. The, the article is called Decentering Hegemony and Open Orders, 15th Century Malacca in a World of Orders. This was, uh, I don't know. Man, thank you so much for coming on the show. This is great. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really had fun talking to you about it. Yeah. All right. Take it easy. Cheers.